Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Often our greatest strengths can also be the places of some of our greatest weaknesses. For instance, if your personality is the type where you you like to have things planned and you prepare and you work months ahead, that's a great thing until life situations call for spontaneity and quick decisions, and we may find that difficult. On the other hand, if you're the kind of personality that loves spontaneity and loves to to just sort of go with the flow and see what happens and, and planning feels confining, that's great as well until you encounter a situation where planning and preparation is vital to be successful. And I think that what we find as, as in our personal lives and as human beings is every bit as true for the church. The places in the church where we find our greatest strengths are also those places where they can turn into some of our weaknesses. The church is a place where where we find it's designed to be a place of refuge and a place of safety and a place where we love and connect and and where we find uh, the kind of relationship that, that gets us through so many difficult things. But as I suspect we all know, the church can also be a place where some of that doesn't happen. And what we find sometimes is that we are so good maybe at those things and the church being that, that we miss something of the mission and the purpose that God has for the church. And I think there's something of that idea, something of that that calling of God that we see in this incident from the life of John the Baptist that we read this morning. As this uh, passage begins, we find that that, uh, Elizabeth is is, is having had her baby. And all of the town is celebrating and rejoicing that Elizabeth has had a child. I suspect their celebration is even more than normal because of the circumstances. Elizabeth tells us Elizabeth is well along in years, past the childbearing years, and yet she has a baby, and they sense God's mercy upon her. They live in a world where infant mortality rates are much higher than they are, for instance, in America. I was reading somewhere recently that they may be as much around 30% of children die as infants. In America, it's about 0.05%. It's a a very, the the risks are so much higher. And, And the fact that Elizabeth being older would also present a great risk for her herself in the giving of birth. All of these factors together, I think, create this atmosphere in which these people have been waiting for four months for this child to be born once they find out that Elizabeth is expecting or have this great community celebration. I suspect that that the women of the village are very involved in Elizabeth's birth. Her mother, the fact that Elizabeth is older may mean that her mother is no longer living, and so these women help her through the birth. They're there for her after the birth. They're bringing in meals, and they're doing all these things that, that, that communities do to help in times like this. And they're very involved. It's a very communal birth. You almost get the sense that the people are saying, this isn't just Zachariah and Elizabeth's baby. This is our baby. And you see that 
when they come to, to the, the event of circumcision and the naming of the child, at this most significant moment in this little baby's life, there they all are and they're very involved. Now, naming of a, of a baby is significant. I loved how Anne had the children tell about their names a few moments ago. And, and every parent that names their child, that name has some level of significance to them. It might be the, because of what the name means. It might be because it is a family name. It might be because of circumstances related to the child's birth. There are all kinds of reasons, but all of them are a matter of significance for the parents. That's why we choose this particular name. I was named Wesley not just because it connects to John Wesley in our history, but because my parents babysat a little boy that they, they dearly loved before I was born, and, and his name was Wesley, and they, they loved that, and they gave me his name sort of as a part of that. It was a, it was a very positive name for them. And I suspect if you think about uh, what you may have named your children or what your parents have named you, there is significance to it. And we see that here in this, as John is brought to be named. I can almost picture the priest asked, looking at Zachariah and Elizabeth and saying, so what name have you given your child? And before Elizabeth can answer, because Zachariah is unable to speak at that time, the people in the community step up and say, oh, his name is Zachariah. And Elizabeth looks at them and says, no, his name's going to be John. And I can see them looking back at her and saying, John? Why would you name him John? There's nobody in your family named John. Why would you pick that name? And so they, they turn to Zechariah and they say, what do you think? And Zechariah asks for something to write on. And, and he, he writes down four words. His name is John. And the minute he makes the last mark at the end of that last N, he can speak again. And the miracle takes place. Now, the question going through my mind about this is why does God care what this baby is named? Why does that matter? And why does it matter that they name him John instead of Zechariah? It's obviously important. It's important enough that of all the things Luke could tell us, he tells us this story. Of all the things from the life of John the Baptist, this is a part of it that Luke tells us. And of all the things that Luke could say that are related to the coming of the Messiah and the birth of the Messiah, he tells us this story. And he takes time to, to tell us the events of the story and how it unfolds. And he does it in a way that I think says to us, this is significant. We need to know this. But Why? Why John and not Zechariah? What's the importance of that? Because the name that's chosen is not Zechariah and Elizabeth's choice. It's God's choice. God had told Zechariah back when he first announced him, the angel announced him in the temple, you're going to name him John. God chooses this name. And the question in my mind is why? And the first thing you may think about is, what, well, it's because of the meaning. But really, Zechariah means... Yahweh remembers, and John means something along the lines of Yahweh shows favor or Yahweh is gracious. And when you look at the, the way God addresses his people and the actions of God, for God to remember is really a, syn a synonym of God being gracious and showing favor. 
You think back to the people, the story of the people of Israel and Egypt. And as they, as they, it says to it, the writer of Exodus says that God remembered them. And that triggered his action. His action of grace and rescue and help and favor. And so the, these two names are really not all that different in meaning. Which then says to me, there must be something else going on here. And I think maybe it has to do with what those names represent, and how this, this boy would represent the name that he's given. If he takes the name Zechariah, then his connection all throughout his life is going to be primarily to his father and his family. But if he's given the name John by God, then all throughout his life, his primary connection will be to his heavenly father and to the kingdom. And I think there is something significant about that. that. That primarily John the Baptist, as the forerunner of the Messiah, as the one who is preparing the way, his primary connection, his primary relationship, his primary reputation, who his, reputa- his life will represent, is not so much his family, as important as that is, and as good as that is, it's primarily about God. And the purposes of God's kingdom. And the people, as they are standing there watching all of this unfold, find it difficult to grasp that. They want, it, they want this child to be primarily turned in toward the family, toward the clan, toward the tribe, toward the village, toward all of them. And there's something in that that I think God is saying to us that my people have a bigger purpose than just themselves. Will Willimon, who was for years dean of the chapel at Duke University and was a bishop in the United Methodist Church, tells about one day preparing a sermon, and he was, he was preparing a sermon from Mark 6 about, about uh, Jesus walking on the water. And uh, in the story, Jesus uh, sends the disciples out onto the lake, and he wants to remain behind to spend some time in prayer. But he can somehow see them on the lake, and he notices that the wind is really blowing hard against them, and they're having a very difficult time with the oars rowing across the lake in the, in the wind, and they're, they're basically unable to move. And they're really fighting harder and harder. And Jesus, story, Mark says, Jesus comes down on the water, and he walks across the water, knowing that they are in serious trouble with the wind. They're rowing hard, and they're struggling against the wind and the waves. And it says about 3 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. But here's the fascinating thing. Mark says he intended to go past them. And Willimon says, I'd never noticed that phrase before. He intended to go past them. That doesn't make any sense. You would think the whole point of Jesus walking on the water was to get to them and to help them. But Mark says, actually, Jesus was going to walk right past them. I think that's because Jesus knew they would be okay. But they cry out to him. He, he, as you can imagine, scares them to death when they see him walking on the water. And so he gets in the boat and he calms the storm. And Willimon's point is, as much as God desires to, to be a place of refuge for the church and desires to calm the storms in the lives of his people, there is a bigger ultimate purpose that God has, and that is beyond the church. 
That Jesus, Jesus knows the church, he's got the church in his hands, but there's more going on. There's more that he's doing. And I think he's calling the church to be a part of that. But our, the church often gets wrapped up in, in maintenance, in self-propagation, in our rights, in in. In making sure that, that our lives are secure and safe, and that becomes our primary thing. When all the while God is saying, it's not just about you. It's about the bigger purposes of my kingdom beyond you. And I think what we find in the difference between Zechariah and John is that Zechariah's, the name Zechariah in this context for this little boy represents sort of the, the, inclusive, the, the exclusive nature of the church that it's really primarily ultimately just about us and preserving us. But the name John for this little boy is about the kingdom of God being so much bigger, so much wider, so much more. And this one who prepares the way for the Messiah is preparing the way by beginning to open the road and to open the eyes of the people, including you and me, about the wideness of God's mercy, about the wideness of God's grace, and that Jesus is coming not just for a few select people, and not just to make those few select people comfortable. For those people to be so in him and him in them that they become agents of his grace to the rest of the world. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to grasp that God's grace is wider and bigger than we can imagine even on our best day. Because all of us wrestle at some point in time with people that we may feel like are unworthy of God's grace. And sometimes there is a frustration in us and maybe even a little bit of irritation that God would extend grace to everyone because there are some people that should not be extended grace for whatever reason. There are people that we struggle to extend grace to. Maybe it's because they have different theological perspectives than we do, or maybe different political perspectives than we do. Maybe it's because they live their lives different than we do. And there's something inside of us that says, I'm not really sure I want God to extend that kind of grace to them. But what I think God is calling the church to be, and what I think Advent is calling us to as we prepare the way for Christ to come, is to have a mindset that rejoices and celebrates that God's grace extends far beyond what we can typically dream or imagine. That God's grace is wider and His mercy is wider. And the gospel is intended for the world. And that ought to cause us to celebrate and rejoice because we get to be a part of that. As the people of God, we get to be a part of extending God's grace, of being agents of God's grace, image bearers of God's grace to people 
everywhere, in every circumstance, whatever that may mean. It's that mindset that has motivated the church through the centuries to keep moving out and reaching out to people that are beyond us. But we're continually tempted to think, first and foremost, the gospel is primarily about me. The gospel is primarily about us. And God's calling us to something bigger, something more. Because this is why Jesus comes. And this is what John is doing to prepare the way. John is not giving us a message that's different than Jesus. He is preparing us for the message of Jesus and for the gospel of Jesus that is wider and bigger than what we typically imagine. When the, after all of these events take place and, and Zachariah is healed, Luke tells us that the people are in awe of what's taken place. And they ask a question. See, what in the world is this child going to be? And they can see that the Lord's hand is upon him. That there is something special about this child than anyone could have imagined. And I think Luke is trying to tell us that. I'm fascinated by the fact that Luke entwines these two stories of these little boys' uh, births. He starts with Zechariah and, and, and the coming birth of John, and then he moves to Mary and the coming birth of Jesus. Then he goes back to Zechariah and, and the actual birth of John, and then goes back to the, to the birth of Jesus. And he, and, he, and he entwines these stories together. I think he may do that for one reason because it's a good literary device. You know, it creates some tension, and, and you're wondering, well, what's happening? And you kind of go back and forth in the stories. But I think Luke has a deeper theological meaning, too. I think he's trying to help us understand that the message and the purpose and the ultimate end of both of these boys is not any different. It's the same. It's about God coming into this world to the whole world, to redeem the whole world. To offer grace to the whole world. With no one excluded. Everyone is offered grace. Jesus comes for everyone. Not just a, a select group of people. Not just a select tribe or village. But the whole world. And John goes out preaching. Prepare the way of the Lord. Because he's coming and it's going to amaze you. He's coming to bring grace to all people. And not everyone wants it. Not everyone chooses it. But it's not because God doesn't extend it. And you even see this in how these two little boys' lives are going to be lived. After John is born, or after Zechariah breaks into a song, and, and he breaks into a song about, about the, the birth of this child. And you get near the end of it, and he says, And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And then he goes on, and he talks about, Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. 
It is light for all in darkness. And later, after Jesus is born, Joseph and Mary take him to the temple to be dedicated to God. And and an old man, Simeon, sees them. And he's been waiting for the Messiah to come. And the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, this is the one. And, and, And Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, now your servant die in peace as you promised. I've seen your salvation, which you prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. And he is the glory of your people, Israel. What both of these songs are declaring is what the prophet Isaiah says in the 49th chapter of his prophecy. He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. Speaking of the Messiah, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. And you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's always been God's intent to come and to redeem the whole world. And he's calling us to see that and to embrace that, to celebrate that. Not just because of what God has done, but because God has called us as his people to be image bearers of this grace and this wonderful, amazing privilege. You know, the the people of the community have a hard time grasping it. I don't think they're intentionally trying to to subvert God's plan, but they miss it. And God's plan, they have to be circumvented nevertheless. And the question for us is, are are we unknowingly, unwittingly, in any way subverting God's plan of extending His grace to all people, in all places, everywhere. He's given us the privilege of being image bearers of his wondrous grace. And that's why we come to this table today, because this table is a table of grace. And you and I come to this table only because of God's grace. And my prayer for us today is that as we receive the bread and the cup, we will, it will be our prayer, God, let me enjoy and celebrate the privilege of not only your grace to me, but the call to be an image bearer of your grace to others. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your grace to us. And we pray for your grace to be seen in us and through us. We thank you, Father, for the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. And we ask that it will be food to our souls to inspire us anew. to the wideness of your mercy, to the wideness of your grace, to the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.